that we have a clearer idea of what the gospel is, we can talk about the law. Take a moment to recall the distinction I made between the expansive sense of the gospel and the restrictive sense of the gospel. The expansive sense refers to all that God does and gives freely out of his own love and goodness. Everything from creation to redemption to sanctification to eternal life in his heavenly kingdom. The restrictive sense of the gospel refers to God's costly decision to love sinners who rejected all these good gifts, which has come about through the death and resurrection of his son. In similar fashion, we can distinguish between two senses of the law. I'm going to call them the instructive sense of the law and the relational sense of the law. The instructive sense of the law fits with the expansive sense of the gospel. God made the world and entrusted its care to human creatures. Therefore, because God loves the world and people made in his image, God desires both to be cared for in a certain way. He wants them, for example, not to be killed. He wants them not to be exploited. He wants the gift of sexuality and family to be honored and respected. He wants there to be love between parents and children. He wants order in the community so that all can be fed and protected and have room to flourish. You can see that from this perspective, everything about the instructive sense of the law is positive. It is intended for good, for flourishing, and to increase love. Of course, that means there are some negative commandments like do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal. But the reason for negative commandments is for the positive goal of protecting and flourishing God's creation. Now, in one sense, this should just be obvious, right? But it usually isn't. First of all, we live in a fallen world of sin. Even the best of human law and justice fall short of God's standard. We are used to hearing about terrible abuses of the legal system or extremely unjust laws. We have developed a taste for revolution and sometimes even pretend that anarchy would be better than government. Even within smaller communities like social organizations, the church, or family life, we know that laws and rules can often take on a life of their own and become more important than the mission or the goal of the community. Law is dangerous. It's almost like law needs laws to keep law under control. And of course, if you know anything at all about the Reformation or have read any of Luther's writings, you are used to his constant critiques of the law. All of this is true, but it can miss the larger picture of the instructive sense of the law. Let me put it to you plainly. You cannot possibly understand the Old Testament, and therefore you cannot possibly understand the New Testament if you have only a negative evaluation of the law. The first five books of the Old Testament are called by the Jews the Torah, a word that means both law and teaching, instruction. In fact, the two necessarily go together. Being given our lives and bodies, our world, our families, the plants and the animals as gifts of God, all this also means being commanded to care for them rightly. The gracious gift is always accompanied by a law for taking care of it. And the people of Israel rejoiced in that fact. The law itself was seen as a gift. Think of the revelation of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai celebrated by the people of Israel on every Pentecost. Think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on God's law meditates day and night. Think of Jeremiah's prophecy that the law would be written on our hearts someday. 
None of these accounts imply that law is a burden or a threat. In this case, God's law is only a good thing given to protect the gift of creation. Now, at this point, you may be looking in confusion at the notes you took earlier on. Wait a minute, professor, you said that the gospel is God's gift. Now you're saying that the law is God's gift? What happened to the distinction between the two? Good questions. Let me clarify. God's gift in the expansive sense is what God freely gives to what does not exist and does not deserve it. Creation itself, salvation, everlasting life. And in this expansive sense, yes, even the law can qualify as a gift of wisdom for caring for the gifts of creation. It is instruction in how to live well and how to love well. That is exactly what the instructive sense of the law refers to. However, as I've already mentioned, much of the time we do not experience the law this way as a gift. And not only when it's corrupted or abused, but even at its best. We may want very much to honor and value our own selves, our friends and family, our neighbors and the earth as God intends us to. But in the same moment, we may also find ourselves in rebellion. As St. Paul says so poignantly in Romans 7, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So you can hear what he's saying there. Even a desperate sinner can agree that the law is good. The problem is that the law cannot remove the rebellion from inside of the sinner. In fact, the law can often make it worse. Have you ever tried to break a bad habit, say, eating something unhealthy or smoking cigarettes or staying away from a person that you know is bad for you? What happens when you make this rule for your own good? You want it more than ever. As long as the only barrier between you and the desired thing is a law, the law is going to lose. Your desire will kick that law right out of the way and you will remain a slave of your desire and a slave of the damaging thing. The law is good, but its power over your desires is almost non-existent. Now, in cases like this, our relationship to the law is bad enough, almost tortured. But what happens when then God comes into this picture? God, good and gracious God, who gave us our lives, our bodies, our relationships, our planet, and rules about how to manage them. Now he's looking on us and seeing how we have abused these gifts, how we treat them like private property, not like his precious works entrusted to his, our care, how we cannot manage our desires, how we despise his law. What can our relationship with God possibly be then? It can only be a nightmare. All we can hear from God in this situation is law and with law, accusation. You have sinned. You have failed. You have fallen short of my glory. You deserve punishment. You deserve death. You deserve to be cast out from my presence. When you read or hear Luther's critiques of the law, this is what he has in mind. In these cases, Luther is not talking about the wisdom to care for God's gifts or the protections put in place for the sake of life, but specifically this voice of accusation against our sin. Sin is what turns the law into our enemy. Sin is what makes us hear God only as an angry judge. 
Sin is what corrupted the instructive sense of the law and turned it into only this relational sense. So that's why we're making this distinction here. In this situation, we are hearing not the instructive sense of the law, but this relational sense of the law. Here, the law is defining our relationship with God. It has become the mediator between us and God. It is the one to assess whether we are worthy of God's gifts or whether we are not. And the answer is always no, we are not worthy. Therefore, the law sends us away from God's presence to hell where we belong, where in fact we might prefer to be our own private lords instead of God's repentant children. Now, does the fact that the law can be used this way by sin relationally make it bad? No, the instructive sense remains and it is good. In fact, the relational sense could not exist unless the instructive sense of the law was there and was good. But the problem of both senses of the law is that neither of them can save us. It cannot save sinners. It cannot change sinners. The law can only accuse sinners in this situation until something comes along to change it. For Luther, the critical weakness of the law is that it has no power inside of itself to alter the relationship between us and God as long as we are sinners. The law is simply stuck. It has to name sin as sin, and it has to punish what deserves punishment. The law must continue. But contrary to the optimistic anthropology of someone like Gabriel Beale, human sinners do not possess in themselves the capacity to turn away from sin, even to do our best. Thus, as long as we continue to be sinners, the law is forced to become the mediator of our divine human relationship, and that will always mean eternal loss. As Luther puts it in his commentary on Galatians, we are the offenders. God with his law is the offended. And the offense is such that God cannot forgive it, and we cannot remove it. Therefore, there is grave discord between God, who is one in himself, and us. Nor can God revoke his law, but wants it to be observed. And we who have transgressed the law of God cannot flee from the sight of God. So take a moment now, as I've given you so far, what can take away the relational power of the law over us? What allows us to receive the law as instruction but it puts an end to it as the mediator between us and God. I bet you don't even have to write it now. I bet you could just shout out the answer without my having to tell you. Oh, come on! <laughs> Haven't you been listening? <laughs> Grace. Grace, right, the gospel, Jesus Christ. That is what puts an end to this relational sense of the law and gives us back purely the instructive sense of the law. So, the gospel, and specifically, let's say, the restrictive sense of the gospel. It is the incarnation, ministry, death, and resurrection of the second person of the Trinity. In Luther's theology, when there is a conflict between law and gospel, it is always and only over which has the right to define the relationship between God and sinners. Let me say that again. If there is a conflict between law and gospel, the only conflict is going to be which of them has the right to define the relationship between God and sinners. 
Or, to put it in more familiar doctrinal terms, which will justify the law or the gospel? The law would assume either the human's capacity to save ourselves, or it would insist on the right to send every last human to hell. But the gospel, which is the Holy Spirit's work of granting faith in Christ's loving self-sacrifice in order to put our relationship with the Father on an entirely new level, that is a different possibility for justification. But only one of these can justify, either the law or the gospel, not both. Only one can be the mediator of our relationship with God. Needless to say, for Luther, this marks the law as a loser where justification is concerned every single time. Now, I think that Luther's insight into this distinction between law and gospel as the difference between two kinds of relationship between God and sinners is one of his most valuable gifts to the church. But it should come as no surprise that it has often been misread. He often makes caveats like, this does not mean that the law is evil. It means that it cannot contribute anything to justification. And yet, it has been very easy for people to take Luther's attack on the law as the mediator of the God-human relationship and assume that means a total rejection of the law altogether. Well, again, this is the same thing that happened to St. Paul. It's no surprise that both Paul and Luther had antinomian interpreters who assumed, oh, okay, if grace reigns over our lives, then the law has no place. Therefore, in doctrinal theology, we must make explicit the distinctions that are within both Luther and Paul, but sometimes remain more implicit than explicit. So, going back to Luther's Galatians commentary, even though Luther is there constantly talking about the gospel and about grace and about Jesus Christ as the one mediator, yet you can still hear him say things like this, the law is the best of all things in the world. The law of God is greater than the entire world, since it includes all people, and the works of the law are far more excellent than the works chosen by self-righteous people. The best thing that the world has on this earth is the law. The law is something which, except for faith, is the best, the greatest, and the loveliest among the physical blessings of the world. But what is the law? Is it not also a commandment of love? In fact, the law commands nothing else but love. In short, the law is good, holy, useful, and necessary so long as one uses it in a legitimate way. Namely, so long as one uses it as instruction for the blessing and flourishing of creation and not as the mediator of the divine human relationship. Thus, Luther says, apart from the matter of justification, we, like Paul, should think reverently of the law. We should endow it with the highest praises and call it holy, righteous, good, spiritual, divine, etc. Apart from our conscience, we should make a god of it. But in our conscience, it is truly a devil. In other words, recognizing both the instructive sense and the relational sense and their distinction is essential to gain an accurate portrait of God's law in our lives. Well, unfortunately, the emphasis on the relational sense of the law as a Lutheran distinctive has at times led to a catastrophic abandonment of the instructive sense in Lutheran teaching, allowing people to live lives destructive to themselves and others while pretending that that is holiness. However, we can equally say that types of Christianity that preach the instructive sense of the law without the gospel 
end up trapping people, forcing them into spiritually destructive mindsets, despairing to the point of suicide, prideful to the point of legalism and judgmentalism. We can never choose one word of God at the expense of the other. Both law and gospel are God's word to us. Therefore, we can say that Lutherans read Luther rightly when we insist on the ongoing battle of the believer against sin and the flesh, which still hates the law and at times wants to be justified by it. And when we recognize that there will not be the same harvest of fruit in every regenerate person. We do indeed receive the gift and the first fruits of the spirit here, Luther writes, so that we begin to love, but this is very feeble. But Lutherans read Luther wrongly when we dismiss the role of the law as instruction toward good works in the life of the believer. Law keeping is an indication of the presence of the life-giving spirit. Appropriately so, since it is the life of his creation that God gave his law to preserve. Therefore, Luther says, all the duties of Christians, such as loving one's spouse, rearing one's children, governing one's family, honoring one's parents, obeying the magistrate, etc., are fruits of the Spirit. For those are righteous who hear the law, embrace it with the goodwill, and delight in it. Such works of the law are spontaneous in that they do not arise from self-justifying calculations about winning merit before God, but rather from the new life of love in the Spirit. However, they are not spontaneous in the sense that they are automatically or individually dreamed up by the person apart from divine instruction. The law directs the new life of love to God's works, not to self-chosen works. Well, you may be saying now, how can I possibly do this? How can I really hear and believe the gospel and really love and obey the law? If you were asking yourself this question, then stop a moment and reflect on what is wrong with the question. What's wrong with asking yourself this? How can I believe? How can I obey? The problem, of course, is that the question itself is framed in a law-only way. How can I do what I need to do? The answer to all such law questions is, you can't. As St. Paul says again in Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body of death? Answer, come on, get it right away this time. Jesus. Thank you, that's great. <laughs> the unifying factor between our believing in the gospel and obeying the law is the living Christ himself. Christ is the active agent in our justification who by the power of the Holy Spirit believes for us and in us. Christ is also the active agent of our sanctification who by the power of the Holy Spirit loves God for us and does good works through us toward our neighbors. Let's hear from Luther again on this point from his Galatians commentary. Putting on Christ is understood in two ways, according to the law and according to the gospel. In Christ, we see the height of patience, goodness, gentleness, and love, and an admirable moderation in all things. We ought to put on this adornment of Christ, that is, imitate these virtues of his. But to put on Christ, according to the gospel, is not a matter of imitation, but of a new birth and a new creation, namely that I put on Christ himself, that is, his innocence, righteousness, wisdom, power, salvation, life, and spirit. In summary, then, it is only the regenerate who keep the law, and it is the law that the regenerate keep. 
believers can get rid of the relational sense of the law forever. You don't need it anymore. Kiss it goodbye. You never have to see it again. But believers will embrace the instructive sense of the law. New birth does not exempt anyone from obedience to the law as instruction in God's good intention for his creation. Sin persists in the flesh of the regenerate, but it can no longer force the law to be the mediator of their relationship with God. Luther says as much when he compares the Ten Commandments to the Creed in the large catechism. The Creed, he writes, is a very different teaching from the Ten Commandments. For the latter, the Ten Commandments, teach us what we ought to do, but the Creed tells us what God does for us and gives to us. Therefore, the Ten Commandments do not succeed in making us Christians, for God's wrath and displeasure still remains upon us because we cannot fulfill what God demands of us. But the Creed brings pure grace and makes us righteous and acceptable to God. Through this knowledge, we come to love and delight in all the commandments of God because we see here in the creed how God gives himself completely to us with all his gifts and power to help us keep the Ten Commandments. The Father gives us all creation, Christ all his works, the Holy Spirit all his gifts. So the Ten Commandments are the law, what God commands. The creed is the gospel, what God gives. They are not opposed to each other, for the first commandment tells us to worship only the true God, and the first article tells us who the true God is and what he has done for us. It is, in fact, only by believing and receiving the gospel that we can even begin to keep the law truly. Let's see the same pattern at work in the Gospel of John, like I did with the gospel earlier. There is no competition between law and gospel in John. They are both God's word, but they do different things. Jesus is the confirmation of Moses' teaching, not its destruction, though Jesus also brings with him something new. Think about it. There is no negative contrast, actually, in the Greek, in the prologue statement, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Some translations will put the word but in there. There's no but. It's just two things. This is what Moses brought. This is what Jesus brought. Jesus' resurrection from the dead makes disciples, makes his disciples believe the scripture, which means the Old Testament. It doesn't mean the New Testament. John did not know he was writing the New Testament at the time. In fact, it is not possible to believe in Jesus without first believing in Moses. Jesus says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? For scripture cannot be broken. You also can't squeeze out of John the idea that obedience to the law is irrelevant to the disciples' life. One of Jesus' most incisive criticisms of his compatriots was their disdain for what God commands. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. By contrast, Jesus' disciples should be recognizable to the community at large as those who do exactly what he commands, namely that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Here we see how the gospel enables the keeping of the law without collapsing the distinction between the two. Love is at the heart of the law as much as as it is at the heart of the gospel. Only a false disciple could claim to rejoice in what God gives, the gospel, and yet have no regard for what God commands, the law. For, Jesus says, 
If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I asked at the end of the last lecture whether the gospel could issue commands. The answer was yes, but in a unique way, the gospel commands more gospel. We are commanded not to do, but simply to receive all that God has to offer. So now let me ask a related question. Can the law make promises and give gifts? Now, it should be clear, I hope by now, that the law cannot give salvation or justification or a clean conscience or peace with God. Never. That is not what the law does. It is not its job. The law's job is to protect the gifts of creation. It is in this realm only that the law can make promises. So, in this domain, Luther observes that the Ten Commandments end with a grand promise attached to them, mercy unto a thousand generations. But it is not only a promise of mercy. Since this is the law, after all, there is also a threat, visiting the sins of the fathers upon the children. So Luther concludes, these words contain both a wrathful threat and a friendly promise, not only to terrify and warn us, but also to attract and allure us so that we will receive and regard God's word as seriously as he does. Unfortunately, as long as we are sinners, promises of the good are not quite enough for us. We also need some threats of punishment to motivate us. Furthermore, the promises of the law pertain to creaturely life only. Blessings will follow the keeping of the commandments. It will not be a perfect blessing since all of us are sinners and we remain in the society of sinners, which means that the law is never perfectly kept. And there are forces of evil that oppose those who believe in God and keep his commandments, causing them to suffer. It is important to be aware of this and prepare yourself for it. And yet, for all that, it would be false to declare that keeping the law brings no benefits at all. It does, and you can plainly see it in societies with better order and justice compared to those that live in chaos and corruption. You can see it in families where love, respect, and wholesome boundaries are the name of the game, as opposed to families where the rules of proper relationships are constantly violated. And even beyond this, Luther mentions another blessing for those who keep the law. He says, if you ask why God does not undertake these good works himself, since God obviously knows how to help every person, here is the answer. God can certainly do them, but prefers not to do them alone. God wants us to work together with him, and God does us the honor of accomplishing his work with and through us. If we decline to accept this honor, then God will do it alone and help the poor. Those people, however, who did not wish to help God and scorned that great honor will be damned along with the doers of injustice and considered their confreres. In like manner, God alone is blessed, but he would also give us the honor and not be blessed by himself. The commandments would be given to us in vain if only God were active because no one would have cause to exercise themselves in the great works of these commandments. So, not only personal benefits, not only social peace, not only family harmony, but even divine honor is promised to those who keep the law. So it is clear that the law does have its own kind of promises. So, as I hope I've persuaded you by now, Luther's distinction between law and gospel is an extremely helpful guide to reading the scripture 
illuminating for us how God speaks these two words, both of them his words, but each saying a different thing. We can apply this distinction not only to scripture, but also to preaching, church practice, and society at large. So I'm going to take a look now at each of these three areas and see how we can put the law gospel distinction to work in them. So let me start with preaching. Take a moment to think of the sermons you usually hear, or if you're a preacher, the sermons you usually preach. Or even think about how you talk about the Christian faith with other people. Where does your emphasis fall? Do you speak both the word of the gospel and the word of the law? Or do you have a favorite, choosing only one word and not the other? Let me give you some examples of what come to my mind when I think about law and gospel in sermons and the less ideal versions of them I hear there. So I would say the kind of sermon that I have heard most often is what I would call soft law. It is not legalistic or extreme. It rarely mentions any of the Ten Commandments by name or number. It doesn't say plainly, you shall not kill, you shall not steal. Instead, the sermon says, we should love one another. We should be kind and patient and understanding and friendly. We should welcome each other, and we should welcome people who are different from us. Let's be good to one another. I don't disagree with this message. I would also like people to be kind and good to each other, but I have two problems with this message as a Christian sermon. First, I don't need to go to church to hear this message. I hear it all the time, from politicians to pop songs to TV commercials. Everyone, everywhere is telling me all the time that I should be good and we should live together in peace. But no matter how many times this is said, the words don't actually change anyone's heart. It remains an ideal far away, not a reality. It certainly does not explain why people actually are not kind to one another or how they should respond when someone else does something genuinely evil to them. And I think it makes way too strong assumptions about the congregation it's addressed to, as if there are no serious sinners out there, or that serious sinners would never come to our church to need to hear that hard message. Such soft law may even end up reinforcing the congregation's delusion about being an objectively superior bunch of people, and it would probably alienate any visitors who happen to be serious sinners and come to the conclusion I don't belong here. I'm bad and they're all good. I better leave and never come back. My second problem with the soft law sermon, of course, is that there's no gospel in it. It sounds like Christianity because, of course, Jesus told us to love one another. Yes, Jesus taught the law not to dismantle the Old Testament laws. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished, but to reveal the law's radical depths. But in a soft law sermon, Jesus is not a gift, only an example. And if you think about it, there's no particular reason why Jesus should be the example and not one of the many other superlative moral teachers in history. It might even start to sound prejudiced and small-minded to suppose that Jesus did morality better than anyone else. But no moral teacher alone can unmake and remake my heart to the point that I am really able to keep the law of God out of love and obedience to God alone. To get there, I have to hear the gospel. I have to hear the truth about God who sent his only son to die on the cross for me, who rose again to new life that he gives now to me through the Holy Spirit. 
This is not telling me what kind of person I should be, but what kind of person God already is. And that starts my own process of dying to myself on the cross and gives me hope in the resurrection when I am facing down the evil that I see in the world or in myself. That's the kind I hear most often, but there are other kind of sermons that get the law wrong too. Legalistic sermons equate being Christian with perfectly keeping the Ten Commandments or maybe some other commandments. But the sheer gift of Christ's righteousness doesn't get much attention. This often happens when preachers are really upset about people's bad behavior and threats are the only way they can think of to get people's attention. Such preachers know that threats don't work, so instead they use guilt. Such sermons spend so much time on Jesus' death on the cross, especially the pain and horror of it, that people end up feeling guilty and ashamed of what they have done to Jesus. The emotion of guilt, then, is what dominates, rather than a joyful response to Jesus' self-sacrificing love. Needless to say, I recommend you also avoid legalistic sermons. So that's law errors. Here's another kind of sermon that I've often heard, which I call half gospel. It tells me again and again how much God loves me. God loves me so much. Nothing can stop God from loving me. Isn't that nice to know? But that's all the sermon has to say. I have no idea why it should be news that God loves me. It just kind of sounds like his job. So I can assume, okay, God loves me, and now I can get on with my life. It doesn't actually change me in any way. And in fact, after a while, I find this message kind of boring. This sermon is only half the gospel, first of all, because it is only an abstract theory about God. It tells me nothing of the real lived history of God's love. God's love in the world starts with creation. It continues specifically through the election of Israel to be God's chosen people. It includes God's faithfulness to the disobedient patriarchs, to the slaves trapped in Egypt, to the proud who ignore the prophets, to the poor under Roman domination. A true gospel sermon has to tell me about the supreme expression of God's love in Jesus dying on the cross. Now this sermon, the God loves you, loves you, loves you sermon, is furthermore only half gospel because it doesn't tell me how much it cost God to love me. It's costly because I became a sinner and turned against God. And not only me, but the whole human race. God took the sin so seriously that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross to take away my sin. He sent his spirit to tell me this news and tried to turn my heart back to him again. That means that I have to confront my sin I have to die to my old self in baptism and daily repentance and finally at the hour of my physical death. And it also means that I have to recognize that God's love is not something boring or obvious or self-evident, but something amazing, life-changing, world-changing. Here's another half-gospel type sermon, and probably more dangerous than the first. This half-gospel sermon declares that I can be transformed. With God's power, I can be better, holier, and stronger. I can have more faith. I can serve my neighbor better. I can praise God with more of my being. Why is this not the gospel? I'm not going to make you answer, but I hope you already know the answer before I continue. 
This is not the gospel because it is not about what God has done. It is not about mercy and grace from the fiery heart of God expressed on the cross. Instead, this sermon is all about me, my improvement, my future, my powers. It is dangerous because it is so often mistaken for the gospel. Yes, what we want is transformation, improvements, and progress that we can see and that we can show. And yes, as Christians, we do believe those things will be ours in the life to come. But to preach them now as the center and focus is a devilish deception. It teaches us to put our trust in ourselves and ourselves' progress, not in God's ongoing kindness to the weak and the sinful. It teaches us to divide people up into categories of more and less transformed, more and less holy. It suggests that God's salvation of us now is only a down payment on the real work that we do to become better. This is the most popular religion in the entire world. I don't care what you call it by its official name. This is the true human religion. But it is not the gospel. It is, in fact, the enemy of the gospel. It subtly puts me at the center of the universe on an exciting adventure of self-improvement instead of calling me to worship the one Lord of all who creates, sustains, redeems, and renews all things solely by his own mercy and grace. You know what? Let me tell you honestly. I would love to be so transformed and have so much confidence in God that I never had to turn to him in weakness and fear again. I would love to be so transformed in my personal holiness that I never needed to apologize for my evil deeds and failures again. I would love everyone around me to be so transformed that I never needed to forgive them again. Is this the gospel, though? Is this desire and love of mine one for the gospel? Or is it my own selfishness disguised as religion? Let me tell you what Luther said to just such a friend who wanted this kind of transformation. Beware of aspiring to such purity that you will not wish to be looked upon as a sinner or to be one, for Christ dwells only in sinners. That, my friends, is the gospel. Christ dwells only in sinners. Now I'm going to move on to law and gospel in church practice. Sermons are the obvious place to hear the law-gospel distinction, or the failure to distinguish it rightly. But this distinction must be applied to all areas of church life as a test of what the church is doing. History has shown how easy it is for the church to get off course, chasing after some other law or some false gospel. A law-gospel analysis shines a bright light on the church's actions and calls for correction when the church loses its way. So, how does the church fail in its proclamation of the law of God? It does so either by, one, requiring what God does not require, or by not requiring what God does require. I know that's a bit confusing, so let me unpack it with some examples from the Reformation era. How did the church require or command what God did not require or command? So one such commandment was fasting on certain days. Although there is indeed a long history of fasting in the church, and certainly there are ways to fast that are acceptable to God, 
making fasting a requirement of the church to be a Christian with a corresponding penalty goes far beyond what God's law actually requires of Christians. In fact, there are quite severe warnings in the Bible against the misuse of fasting for the sake of an impressive religious appearance. Another such example of making a commandment that God did not command was forbidding marriage to Christian priests. Again, like with fasting, it is within the domain of Christian freedom to decline marriage, assuming that the result is genuine celibacy, but to make it a law for the priesthood is beyond anything required by the scripture. 1 Timothy 4 specifically warns us against those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So the medieval requirement of celibacy for the priesthood made into a religious law what was not, in fact, a law of God. On the other side, the church can fail by not commanding what God does, in fact, command. Since almost the earliest days of the Reformation, Luther's teaching was misunderstood in an antinomian direction. That means anti-law. Antinomians heard what Luther said about how good works cannot save us, which is true, but then they concluded that good works have nothing to do with the Christian life at all. Now, honestly, if you have read any of Luther, it's hard to imagine how you could possibly come to this conclusion. But then you could say the same of St. Paul, who preached nothing but the saving work of Christ, out of which true good works spring, but he had antinomian interpreters too. The point is that antinomians fail to require what God does require at its most basic obedience to the Ten Commandments. Now, I'd like you to take a moment to think, what are the misrepresentations of the law here in your context? As a foreigner, I cannot answer that question for you, but I encourage you to meditate, it on, the days, meditate on it in the days ahead. You will learn a lot about your church and the wider culture it is in by examining this question. Sometimes the results will seem quite silly, and yet they can be treated with absolute seriousness. So, for example, in American culture, there exists the kind of church that, as I mentioned, despises plastic bags and insists on replacing all the light bulbs in the church with the low-energy kind, yet will never make any critique of people's sexual habits on the grounds that that is moralistic and judgmental. At the other extreme, there's the kind of church that won't let young people listen to popular music on the grounds that it corrupts them, yet promotes gun owning and building walls against poor immigrants. Your own church may be more subtle in its errors, but if you follow the preached and obeyed laws, you will find out who or what is really being worshipped. Needless to say, the answer all too often is not God. Okay, now what about failures on the gospel side? In this case, the church either withholds what God gives or claims to give what God does not, in fact, give. Luther saw an example of the first kind withholding what God gives and the refusal of the church of his day to share the words of institution and the blood of Christ with lay people during Holy Communion. Luther countered with Jesus' own words, drink of it, all of you. The church cannot hold back what Jesus intends to give. Another example of this for Luther was making forgiveness conditional on a perfect confession of sin. 
as he discovered for himself, it is impossible to list all of our sins. In fact, it is impossible to know all our sins. Luther's first protest in the 95 Theses was based on this problem of conditional absolution. People would be forgiven if and only if they confessed completely and sincerely. To this, Luther opposed Jesus' promise of pardon through the office of the keys in Matthew 19 and the power of the Holy Spirit in John 20. The church was not allowed to leave people uncertain about God's grace, withholding it, withholding forgiveness when Jesus promised it freely. On the other side, the church of his day, the church sins against the gospel when it promises what God does not in fact promise or claims to give what God in fact does not give. In Luther's day, such a promise attached to joining a monastic order. It was like a fresh start after baptism failed you and a chance to lead a perfect life. But no promise of Jesus guarantees that. Same for indulgences and relics, which claim to give time off purgatory apart from any such divine promise. These failures led people away from God because it taught them to trust in the wrong thing, to trust in a not real gift that had not really been given. So again, I ask you to take a moment to reflect on the betrayals of the gospel you see at work in your own church. In my American context, I am most likely to see promises that are not promises of God at all. For example, sometimes it seems like the church wants nothing more than to bless everything in sight. I'm not even sure what a blessing means anymore, to be honest. It almost seems like the church's way of entering into the competitive marketplace. Hey, those guys can offer you a new car or a better body, but I'm offering God's blessing. Even if there is no scriptural promise attached, and quite often a lot of scriptural critique of false blessings, This seems to have become the church's main business. Blessing, 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 blessing. Or, more dangerously, the church promises things like healing or wealth. Certainly, some people are healed of disease, including through prayer. And certainly, some people do become wealthy, even by honest means. But are these promises? Are these the gospel? What does that say of people who are not cured and not rich? With such false promises, the successful learn to congratulate themselves as God's favorites, while the suffering and poor deduce that God has abandoned them. This is the complete opposite of the gospel of the crucified Lord. It is really hard to heal people spiritually when they have been exposed to that kind of poison. As for failing to give what God in fact gives... I just see this fundamentally in the failure to preach the gospel. And I mean really the gospel, not the gospel's benefits or transformative results or anything else. Sometimes I feel that the church has just grown bored with scripture, bored with the sacraments, bored with the uncertain progress of history, and insists on seeing the magic happen right here and right now by the church's own efforts if God fails to act quickly enough. But friends, the magic is happening right now and right here. It's every single human life called by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to enter into a relationship of endless mercy because God is endless mercy, unafraid of the cross, unafraid of sin, unafraid of sinners. That's who God is. Whatever other errors we make, God preserve us from making this one from failing to say the plain words of the gospel for you, for the forgiveness of sin. 
Finally now, in addition to helping us understand scripture, analyze sermons, and discern what we do in the church, the distinction between law and gospel can help us understand patterns in wider society. Here's a very important truth. It took me a long time to recognize, but I feel like this is one of the most useful things I've ever discovered. Everyone believes in a gospel and everyone obeys a law. You cannot opt out of the law gospel system. Now, it may not be God's gospel or God's law. In fact, it's probably not. People live according to the gospel of an ideology, a political party, personal success, or maybe even another human being. Whatever it is, all their hopes are pinned on this one thing. Every good they expect is supposed to come from this one source. And likewise, people obey many laws, the traditional law of their society, the law of capitalism or communism, the law of social competition, good manners, law of the belly, the law of cynicism or nihilism. They might not obey the law of the land or the moral law, but they are certainly obeying something. No one lives lawlessly, even those who claim they are. There is some principle that directs all human actions. If God's law is not preached to the church, it's not like Christians will somehow become naturally free with no law. All it means is that they will become obedient to and ultimately enslaved to some law other than God's law. Now, this is where the critical and prophetic work of theology must come in. Christians need to listen very carefully to their people and their society so they can discern what is the actual gospel and what is the actual law at work in their lives. There are people who claim they believe in God's gospel, but really believe something else. There are Christians who claim to obey God's law, but are really slaves of a completely different law. Unfortunately, sometimes these people are the preachers. So it is the work of the whole church together to figure out what the rival gospels and laws are in church and in society so they can be challenged with the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. It will take all the church's intelligence and wisdom to do this because it is very hard to perceive rival laws and gospels. They like to hide. But the light of Jesus Christ must be shined on them so they are exposed. The life of a Christian congregation should be partnering together to learn how to obey God's law and no other, and how to believe in God's gospel and no other. So again, I encourage you, think about it. What is the gospel that the people of your nation and your church hope and believe in? What is the law that your people are obeying? And what would it mean to challenge that law and gospel with Christ's law and gospel? Okay, I'm going to wrap up now by asking an easy question. What comes after law and gospel? Or more precisely, what comes after the law as expressed in the Ten Commandments and after the gospel as expressed in the creed? If you are following along with Luther in the catechisms, the answer is easy, prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Now wait, you may ask, now that I've completely convinced you and convicted you and brought you over to the law gospel way of thinking, what can possibly come after law and gospel? Everything has been said. These are God's two words. Are there any other words of God? No, truly everything needful that God has to say to us is included in the law and the gospel. But now that we have heard God's voice, finally we are invited to speak too. This is the pattern we have seen again and again. It doesn't begin with us, but with God. Yet, once God has acted, once God has spoken, 
a gracious space opens up for us to act and speak too. So in response to law and gospel comes prayer, our words responding to God's. That is why the Lord's Prayer is the third part of the catechisms. Now you might wonder, if God takes care of everything, why do we need to pray? Luther is completely uninterested in speculative questions about prayer. For example, whether it changes God or only us. Prayer for him is not a theory, it's a lifeline. Keeping the Ten Commandments is hard, and so is believing the creed. If you want to obey and believe, you have no choice but to bang on God's door constantly to increase your obedience and your faith. And yet, even that banging on the door in desperation is already part of the obeying and believing. For, as Luther says, prayer is as strictly and com solemnly commanded as all the other commandments. But, even more important and noteworthy than the command to pray, Luther continues, is the promise attached to prayer. Call on me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, says God in Psalm 50. <clears throat> Ask, and it will be given to you, says Jesus in Matthew 7. Luther comments, such promises certainly ought to awaken and kindle in our hearts a longing and love for prayer. For by his word, God testifies that our prayer is heartily pleasing to him. So you see how the pattern of law and gospel is even imprinted upon prayer. It is commanded, but there is a greater promise attached to that. Luther further realizes that prayer can be very hard, and here too, God is merciful. As Luther says, God takes the initiative and puts into our mouths the very words and approach we are to use. The Lord's Prayer is itself an action and expression of God's mercy, teaching us and enabling us to pray. All our desires, fears, and hopes are be to be directed away from the false idols and toward the true God through the prayer that he gives us. So, as with the commandments and the creed, Luther works through the Lord's Prayer piece by piece, breaking it down into seven petitions. The first is, hallowed be your name. It echoes the second commandment, which told us not to use the Lord's name in vain, but to call upon the Lord in every need. And it also echoes the creed, for God's name is already holy, quite apart from us. But the point of the prayer is to make God's commandments and creed apply to me personally. I pray not only that God's name is holy in itself, but that it's holy to me and my life and my heart on my lips. The same is the case in the second and third petitions. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God's kingdom comes and his will is done without our efforts. But here I pray that it will come and be done also in my life and in my heart. Prayer is telling God that I want the story of the commandments and the creed to be my story too. The fourth petition turns from things concerning God to things concerning my life on earth, in my body, and among my neighbors. The same pattern as we saw in the Ten Commandments. Give us this day our daily bread. The first commandment has commanded me to expect every good thing from God. The first article has told me that God is the creator and giver of every good thing. So now, finally, I can respond to commandments and creed with prayer, asking the right God for the right things. The fifth petition, forgive us our trespasses, recalls me to the centrality of forgiveness in the creed. Here I pray to be able both to obey and to receive. 
to obey the command to, to forgive others and to receive the forgiveness offered by God. The sixth and seventh petitions force me to admit that there are powers stronger than myself at work in the world. It would be very easy to live in constant fear of these evils, indeed to make of them idols, terrible and cruel idols, but idols nonetheless who control my every move and thought. But in praying these words, I once again kick the idols out of my heart and turn and depend on God for everything, even in the midst of terrible suffering. Here, above all, we must keep the creed in mind. For the Son of God did not fear evil, but suffered it willingly for our sakes, and came out the other side of death alive forevermore. This is the God we want to sit in the throne of our hearts. And so you see again how these three parts of the catechism connect to each other, as prayer is both the keeping of the commandments and the believing of the creed. And yet everything, even the words, even the ability to pray, is provided for us by God through the Holy Spirit. So, one last time, in case you didn't catch it so far, the law is what God commands, the gospel is what God gives, we need to hear both these words of God, preach them, and pray them. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show. Thank you.